if you have a big tumor, you know, let's say a golf ball sized tumor, you know, how hard it is for the immune system to keep working at those layers. But if you only have microscopic disease, you only have a little bit of tumor, it gives the immune system a heck of a lot better chance to fight that off and get rid of it. This is the James Cantor Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and my guest is Dr. David O'Malley. Dave is the director of the James Division of Gynecologic Oncology, and he is the co-director of the Gyne Oncology Phase 1 program. In a recent episode, Dave filled us in on a new and promising clinical trial that utilizes two immune therapy drugs to treat cervix cancer. Today, we'll talk about a second clinical trial that Dave and his team here at the James are leading that utilizes a different immunotherapy to treat aggressive forms of endometrial cancer, which is also often referred to as uterine cancer. Welcome, Dave. Great to be here, Steve. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it just seems like just the other day we were we were recording a podcast. Time, time flies when you're having fun, right? There you go. So give us a little background on endometrial cancer, which is a pretty common cancer in among women, right? Yeah, it's actually the second leading uh, second leading cancer uh, after breast cancer uh, in women in the United States, and uh, you know the the good news is that women have symptoms, and that those symptoms are are bleeding, um, uh, which then leads to a workup. So the good news is that we are able to perform surgery, a hysterectomy, on these women, and get rid of. Uh, uh, the cancer for most of them. Unfortunately, some of them metastasize or recur, and those are obviously extremely difficult to, to treat. If we get rid of it early, do a hit surgery, uh, sometimes some people need potentially radiation or chemotherapy or both to decrease the risk of recurrence, but we do a pretty good job of taking care of and curing most women with uterine cancer. But once it recurs or it metastasizes, it's much more difficult to so Dave, you said something interesting that there are symptoms and when caught early, it's much, much, much more treatable. Just go over those symptoms again and what women should do if and when they experience any of these symptoms. Yeah, great, great point. You know, I think uh, women who are after menopause, any forms of vaginal bleeding which occur after menopause are not normal. And it's really important to be an advocate for yourself and advocate for family members to make sure you get a proper workup and evaluation. Prior to menopause, any significantly abnormal bleeding particularly if it doesn't respond to medical management, we need to consider potentially uterine cancer. So the number one symptom is irregular or postmenopausal vaginal bleeding, but you can also have other symptoms, pelvic fullness, uh, pain or discomfort, uh, particularly cramping. Um, and those symptoms uh, are often uh, go with the vaginal bleeding, but not always. Okay. So it's important to, like you said, be an advocate for your own health if you experience any of these symptoms. And I take it that for whatever reasons, maybe lack of education or lack of access, that's what leads to women not being diagnosed till it's a couple of years or longer down the road when you have the more serious cases. 
Boy, I wish we could t- say that, but you know, it's. I think it's. It, you know, it's a difficult subject to talk about. Uh, bleeding, uh, bleeding after menopause, bleeding before menopause, and it's not. We don't really engage in in this open dialogue uh, in the United States, and how important it is for us to talk about symptoms that particularly women have. And in the past, I think we really have stigmatized uh, uh, abnormal vaginal bleeding uh, or postmenopausal vaginal bleeding. So it wasn't discussed. We have to break that stigma. We have to understand these uh, the symptoms that need to be reported. But even so, even when patients present, a fair amount of time I'm seeing that uh, physicians aren't comfortable with it, particularly non-GYN physicians. And so that's why I said be an advocate for yourself, getting in and seeing a GYN doctor. That's what they do each and every day. Don't be embarrassed. Let people know the symptoms you're having and make sure uh, you get into a proper uh, a specialist to take care of those symptoms. Okay. That's, that's great advice. And, and now give us a sense before we talk about this new trial and this new drug. Uh, before this trial, before this drug, what was the standard of care and how effective was it? Well, with uterine cancer, I talked about really surgery is the mainstay. And we, again, diagnose most patients in the early stages. Unfortunately, when patients recur, the only real option we have is the option we talked about for cervix cancer, which is carboplatin and paclitaxel. But we don't really have any agents that help that work better in cervix cancer. We talked about antivascular therapy, but those don't really seem to have the benefit in uterine cancer that they have in other cancers. So really, if a patient has a metastatic disease or or, uh, advanced disease, once we move beyond carboplatin and paclitaxel, the options are very limited with very low response rates and sometimes very significant toxicities. So just so I'm clear, when a woman is presented and, and has uh, this type of cancer and you do surgery to remove it, what would cause it to recur? That somehow there's still some cancer cells or they restart all over again? Oh, Steve, you're, 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 you're destroying me here, man. I wish I understood that. Right. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. My patients ask me all the time, what do you mean? You remove my uterus, you remove the lymph nodes. How could it recur? We don't under, we don't know. Is it, you know, uh, a progenitor cell uh, that is, is still left there? Is it microscopic disease, which is left behind? But we see these, uh, uh, we see recurrences years afterwards. So leaving behind quite makes sense. There's probably multiple pathways of recurrence. And unfortunately, we just don't understand them at this point. Well, but 5, 10, 20 years from now, perhaps you will understand that. Well, well, you know what, at the very least we will is, is we will be able to identify those patients who are a higher risk recurrence, making sure that we're giving them the best therapy. And on the other side of it, identifying those patients who are the lowest risk of recurrence so we don't give them therapy they wouldn't need and the toxicity and potentially long-term problems that can occur with some of these treatments. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Dave is going to fill us in on the new clinical trial and and the steps forward that it's going to take in, in treating women. In today's world, misinformation abounds. But at the Ohio State Health and Discovery website, we're addressing today's most relevant health, wellness, science, and research topics, all from the Ohio State experts you can trust. 
we're tapping into physicians, scientists, and thought leaders across our medical center and health sciences colleges to give you the deeper story behind the headlines and the truth about the topics affecting the health of individuals, society, and the world. Visit health.osu.edu today. We're back with Dave O'Malley, and we're talking about a a new clinical trial for uterine cancer that Dave and the James are leading. So Dave, tell us about this clinical trial, the drug, what it does and how it's working. So this is in the class of uh, uh, PD-1 inhibitors. Uh, these are immune agents. And we've talked about before, but just to remind uh, the, the audience that if you have a cancer cell, that cancer cell has figured out how to evade evade the body's own immune response. And so what these agents do are they remove those blockers, those those ways that we've we've evaded that force field, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, to allow the body's own immune system to attack the cancer cells. And so pembrolizumab or pembro that I'll call it is 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 the one of the drugs that we've had the most experience with in uterine cancer. And the reason is that they did this big giant trial and they took patients that were what we call MMR deficient or microsatellite instability high. And what does that mean? That means there's changes in the tumor, in the proteins in the tumor, which allow them to be more susceptible to these therapies. It allows the body, when we remove these blockers, it allows the body to better identify that they're foreign cells and to attack and kill those cells. So it's this whole group of patients we see in colorectal, we see it in uterine cancer, we see it in many different solid tumors. And what the original trial called Keynote 158 did is they took all of those and then they looked at how good Pembro worked when you had these MSI high or D deficient MMR patients. I'm just going to call it MSI high because it's easier to say that. So they looked and they actually, for the first time ever, the FDA gave a drug an indication, not just on a tumor like cervix or uterine cancer, but any patient that was MSI high. And so that was a couple of years ago. And we were able to utilize these agents um, in anybody who is MSI high. And it has really changed the landscape of the patients with these types of tumors over the last several years. So if I understand you correctly, patients with uterine cancer who express this PDL1 shield and also have this high expression of MSI, they would be ideal candidates for this drug. Great way to say, but we don't check PDL1 status on uterine cancer because it really hasn't been shown to be as predictive. The thing which has been seen so predictive is this MSI high status because this mutational burden, these all these changes in the tumor, the body's immune system really responds, and we just have to give the body's immune system the opportunity to get there to attack them. And you've found a drug that does that. 
Yeah, Pembro is a great drug. So, uh, I mean, all the immune drugs have have really revolutionized how we treat uh, uh, patients with uh, cancers and mostly solid uh, tumors. But uh, we're seeing just things that we've never seen before in our in our lifetime. And so, what this report was is it took that big giant trial and it looked just at called Keynote 158 and looked just at those patients who had uterine or endometrial cancer. And so we identified uh, 79 patients, 79 patients who had uterine cancer that had this MSI high. And we found that about a half, 48% to be precise, um, responded uh, markedly. And of those, we found 14% had a complete response. 14%, what is that, one out of about seven, not quite seven, who their cancer was completely gone with the treatment of immune therapy. And so when we look back at this group of patients, it is the large, longest, longest, not largest, excuse me, I misspoke, the longest experience of following these patients out, where the the average time that we had followed these patients is three and a half years or 42 months. So we have these, you know, 79 patients who've been followed out almost four years. And if patients responded, two-thirds of them are still responding at three years. Well, these patients are not just at the James, right? They're everywhere. Well, they're all, all over the United States. This trial, mostly in the United States, there was some international sites. So what's it like for you as, as a gynecologic cancer doctor who's treated women for a long time when you enroll someone in a trial like this and they are in that 14% um, or was it seven or 14% that their cancer is gone? 14% complete response, right? 48% of them had a a marked response. What's that like when you get to give the news to your patient? Steve, you know, I'm not, I I say this, I'm I'm 20 some years into my career and, and I don't know how to counsel patients anymore because I used to say, if your cancers recurred, you know, uh, we're, we're not going to get rid of it. We're going to have to control it for as long as we can. I no longer can say that. Now I say, I don't know what we're going to see from a response rate. I'm not sure if we're going to get rid of this cancer so it never comes back. But you know what? That's what my hope is. I would have never said that. Again, these patients who I never thought in my lifetime, you've heard me say this before, Never thought in my lifetime I'd be talking about patients who were cured of recurrent cancer who had already been through prior therapies. And now that's what we're talking about. So what does that mean in terms of this clinical trial? You're three or four years into it. You're seeing these great results. What's the next step to perhaps make it a treatment that more and more women would would undergo? Yeah. It's a, it's, you know, we are really looking right now. This trial was patients who had previously been treated. Okay. So previously not responded to the best therapies available. And now what we're doing is we're moving up these immune therapy agents like Pembro into women who are being treated with the first line of therapy for their metastatic recurrence. So the carboplatin paclitaxel, we're treating plus immune therapy. We're taking women who have had surgery 
and are at a higher risk of recurrence. Remember how I said earlier on in this conversation, we are now identifying women who are at higher risk of recurrence, and we're offering them clinical, still clinical trials to see if the immune therapy would markedly decrease that recurrence rate. And thus, as I just said, trying to get rid of the cancer so it doesn't come back once it's recurred is extremely difficult. Now we're seeing some of it, but not, but we never were before. The best thing for us to do is in the earlier line is to get rid of it, increasing the chance it doesn't come back in the future. So we're utilizing these immune therapies even for patients who are early stage disease, we're at a higher risk recurrence. We have patients who had metastasized, but it's still confined to lymph nodes. And then we're also utilizing in people who have had met, uh, a markedly metastatic disease, like, you know, through in their lungs and things like that, or who have recurred after prior therapies. And we're utilizing immune therapies in each one of those patient populations in clinical trial. And we should have the answer uh, at least to some of those questions here within the next year or two. Which means if the answers are are good answers, then it could move from a clinical trial to standard of care. Exactly. Now this is just like uh, Pembro in this instance, we have another drug called Distarlamab that's also indicated in this similar uh, group of patients that, that we're going to move it from only patients who have already received the best therapy to becoming part of the best therapy right at the first uh, opportunity. We know the best therapies work the best the earlier we give them in their in their treatment. Boy, that's a great point and one that as you were describing it that really sort of sunk in for me that you're not just initially you come up with treatments for people in the later stages when it's more severe, but you're gradually going down the ladder to the first rung and getting better treatment initially, which means you may never get to that metastatic or recurrent stage, which is amazing. Well, and think about it. It makes complete sense, right? If, if you have a big tumor, you know, uh, 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 let's say a golf ball size or, 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 you know, a size tumor, you know, how hard it is for the immune system to keep working at those layers. But if you only have microscopic disease, you only have a little bit of tumor, it gives the immune system a heck of a lot better chance to fight that off and get rid of it. Makes sense? Yeah. It sounds like what fuels your optimism and everyone else at the James is exactly what you're talking about, these advances. And it must be pretty exciting time. Steve, you know, we, we say at the James, there's no routine cancer, right? And this is a perfect example. By identifying these MSI high patients, finding a treatment that is most apt to benefit them, and then utilizing that in the proper setting. I, you heard me say before, and I'd love to say it, you know, at the James, where, where, where our patients are getting tomorrow's therapies today, I, I, I couldn't be happier. Okay. Well, well, thank you for filling us in on this, this great clinical trial for uterine cancer and, and knock on wood, it, results are get, keep getting even better. I love it. And thank you for having me. You know, you can hear my passion and uh, the opportunities for our patients. And, and we're living in an unprecedented time of, uh, with immune therapy and drug development. And, and just we're, we're, we're such great opportunities for our, for our patients and for many of us who are, are facing uh, cancer. 
This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.